Who's excited to be here tonight? I am really excited that you guys are here. This is, this is so fantastic. This has been so long in the making. I remember standing on this stage back in October when we decided that we needed to move Regen back to Glorieta, New Mexico. I think we made the right choice, don't you guys think? Like, we've got a, no, come on guys. We're back at Glorieta. Can we try that again? Yeah, yeah let's go, I mean, come on. We have a fantastic week planned. Uh, there's so many things to be excited about. We've got games that are kicking off tomorrow. We've got an open mic night talent show tomorrow. But we've got all, I mean, did you guys see there's a, there's a zip line off the tower of this building. Did you see that? You could do that, it's safe, don't worry, you'll be fine. But there's so many different things. We've got all these different, we've got a game this year called Mud Wars. It's gonna be awesome. We've got a game called Batalla de los Barcos, which I personally am excited for. We've got mini golf, we've got all these different things that you could do here. This is gonna be a great week. I'm really, really excited that you're here. Thank you so very much for coming. We think this is a great way for you to, to spend your summer or week of your summer. But I, I want to let you know up front, before we get into our, our passage tonight, I am most excited, above the games, above everything that we're going to do outside, most excited about what's going to happen in this room. When we open up this book, and we hear not just from different men, but we hear from the God of the universe. Because that's what happens when we open up the Bible. We hear from the God that created us, the God that's controlling everything, orchestrating all, sustaining everything. That is what I am most excited about. Maybe in your small groups tonight, you're gonna be asked a question like this. It's a question I used to ask in my small groups a lot. I think it's a good question to ask. Why are you here? Why are you at camp? Even now, think about that. Why are you here? For some of you, maybe it's the games. Maybe it's because all your friends are here and you don't want to just sit home for a week. Maybe you weren't coming until that girl signed up or that guy signed up and you're like, well, maybe this is the camp where the romance happens. And that's how you decided to sign up. Maybe, maybe you're here because your parents made you and you don't really want to be here or someone paid your way. There's a lot of different reasons why you could be here. Let me tell you what, what I know the answer is though. For no matter what, how you answer that question, the answer is you are here because God wanted you to be here. His plan was for you to be here this week. And that is what I am most excited about. That's what I am most looking forward to because when God speaks and his spirit works, we see transformation. We see lives change, not some superficial kind of mystical change, but genuine change from the inside that comes from the word of God. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to hearing how God's gonna work in your life this week. For some of you, this week will be an encouraging week. As you think about following Christ, Maybe there'll be a, a new passion for Christ that's ignited that drives you to a radical pursuit of following and serving him. For others, maybe this is the, maybe this is the week you get saved. 
maybe this week is God showing his grace and giving you another opportunity to trust in his son. Or maybe for believers, this is a week where God wants to expose sin in your hearts. I don't know specifically what God wants to do with your heart, but I know that you're here because he wants to do business with you as he speaks to you through his word. Make no mistake, you're here because God wanted you here. Can I ask you, for your own benefit this week, take advantage of this time as you hear from the Lord. Make the most of this opportunity and examine yourself. We have small groups after every single session. Maybe this year, be open about where you're at in your small groups. We have times for you to get time in the Word each morning. Spend time reflecting, reading your Bible, asking, Lord, where am I at? How am I doing? Even go to small groups quickly each week. Don't dally, but get there each session. Get there quickly so that you could talk about what stood out to you in the sermon. Come ready to listen. Come ready to sing. Or maybe even during some of the free time, buy your staff leader or your, your small group leader a, a milkshake at the milkshake shop and say, hey, I would love 15 minutes. Talk to me. How am I doing? What are you seeing in my life? But take advantage this week as God is going to do surgery. He's going to look in our hearts. He's going to reveal to us where we're at. Prepare your heart. Be ready for the Lord to work. That's what I'm looking forward to. And that's, the, that's the, the purpose of why we are here. So before we get started with tonight, now let me just pray to, to kind of dive in um, to our session tonight. Father, thank you so much for bringing everyone here. We are just blown away by the, the numbers that are here. So thankful, not just for the students, God, but the eternal souls that you've brought here. Lord, we want you to do work in our hearts this week. We want you to show us how we're loving you. We want you to expose our sin. We want you to give us a glorious picture of your son, that we would treasure him and adore him and leave here wanting to proclaim and live for him. Lord, we cannot manufacture this. We've planned games. We've planned activities. But God, only you can work in the and bring fruit in the way that we want to see it. We pray that you would do that starting tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you think back to your most embarrassing moment? Now, some of you just looked to your friend next to you because your embarrassing moment either happened with them, maybe on the bus ride earlier. I got some funny pictures on the bus ride of kids like sleeping on the floor and like touching five seats at once, which is weird. And think about your most embarrassing moment. Maybe it's you just tripped, you know, you, that, that guy, you finally got his eye and all of a sudden you tripped and fell right in front of him or something like that. I'll give you my most embarrassing moment. You know, when I was in high school, I played basketball and all us basketball players, we thought we were athletes. We're just really tall people that have a height advantage, and that's not much athleticism going on there. But we all thought we were athletes. We all thought we were tough. And because we had driver's license in Southern California, we like to drive to the beach. I mean, it's 45 minutes away. Let's make this happen. And so we're at the beach. We're hanging out. Now, we had heard that that day that there was a strong riptide. And if you don't know what a riptide is, it's a current that moves quick uh, running parallel to the shore and it can move you pretty fast along to where, hey, I'm, I'm in the water and then five minutes later, I'm, I'm many yards away from where I entered the water. 
And the danger of where we were is there was a, a pier. Now, for those of you who have never seen the ocean, a pier is like a long wooden bridge that goes out into the water. That's my description if you've never been to the beach before. All right, there we go. That's what he said. The danger with that is if the riptide catches you and drives you towards that, um, you, you, know, you can get smashed. There's, there's animals under there. It's not a good place to be. Anyway, so me and my buddy, we are just, we've got a tennis ball. We're at the beach and we're throwing it out into the ocean as far as we can go. And because we're challenging each other, we are just throwing it out further and farther and we notice we're getting closer and closer to the pier and all of a sudden we're really far out. We're really close to the pier and my buddy goes, oh, Josh, my legs are cramping up. It's not what you want to hear from your friend who's a junior uh, driving to te- driven to tears because his leg is cramping up. And so we're trying the best that we can here we are, these macho athletes, and we're just getting closer and closer. We're about sophomores, juniors in high school, 16 years old. We're caught in this riptide, and we're going to either swim under the pier. We don't know what we're going to do. When out swims to us a lifeguard. And when I say lifeguard, I don't mean like a big, macho, masculine lifeguard. I mean a 19-year-old, five-foot-four girl lifeguard to rescue two six-foot-three guys from swimming into the pier. Now, I thought I was a strong enough swimmer. You know, I, I was Marlin of the Month for the Murrieta Marlins in third grade. It was a rotational award, uh, and I only did it for four months. But, you know, I've swam competitively, seventh place. But anyway, I thought it would be good, and, you know, I'm still doing fine. My buddy's, like, got his leg cramped up, and the girl goes, do you need help? Well, the answer is yes. But she's a very little girl. And we're like, man, if we, all our friends are back to shore, we don't want to do this. So, you know, I try to act tough. I'm like, oh, I'm good, but he's cramping up. So my buddy is shamed, grabs onto the buoy, and she's dragging him in. And I'm trying to swim after them. Well, what I notice after a few seconds is they're swimming much faster than I am. So I decide to grab on too. And, uh, and we slowly made our way back to the shore. As soon as we got back, where we'd like ducked in cover, we just left. I mean, I think we left like our towels, our shirts there. I mean, this girl literally, I think, maybe came up to this high on me and pulled us back to shore. Embarrassing. Our friends still rag on us about that. Maybe you've had an, an experience like that. You know, the, the dangers with, with currents, when we talk about that riptide, the danger with it is not just that you drift, But the danger is if you've drifted so far that it's difficult to return to the point where you entered. That's what makes riptides dangerous, is they drag you so far sometimes that you're past the point of no return. Well, there is a more dangerous drift that has occurred in our society. A more dangerous pull that has pulled us away from reality. And some of you might be thinking, oh, it's, I know what you're talking about, Josh. We've drifted away from the truth. And I would say, yeah, our, our culture's drifted away from the truth. Or we've drifted away from what, you know, God's plan is for marriage. And we've definitely drifted away from that. But I think there's a more dangerous drift that has occurred. You see, we have drifted away from the truth of what it actually means to be one of God's people. We have drifted away from what Scripture says, not just about who God is, but what it actually means to belong to Him. We've lost the entry point, and we're in a state of confusion of we're not really sure where we started. How would you answer the question of what does it mean to be a Christian? 
Or what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ or to be someone who worships and obeys God? I looked online for this, which is not a good place to look. One blogger writes, to be a Christian is to love. If you want to answer all the questions, you just love. Why is there war in the world? Well, just love. You need to start to love people, starting with yourself. Mm. There we go. Hands emojis at the end. It's all, it's all pretty right there. Another person might say, well, a Christian is someone who grew up in church, and they know all the songs, and they own their own personal Bible. Another might say, well, as a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. And as long as you factually believe in Jesus, whether you're the drunk who prays to him every once in a while when you're in trouble, or you're the Mormon that doesn't believe that he was fully God, as long as you believe in Jesus, you can claim to be a Christian. Others think honoring God is really about the heart. So whether you call him God or Allah or whatever other made-up religion you have, you, I mean, you could call him turkey monster for all I care. If, you're, if it's from the heart and it's sincere, then, then you're practicing good religion. Others might say, well, the best Christians are those who don't take it too seriously. There's the fanatics. The better Christians are those, well, yeah, I go on Sunday, but I don't go crazy during the week. I don't want to impose it on anybody else. These are the definitions floating around out there of what is a Christian. What do you think it is to be a Christian? Or, or what kind of Christian would you say you are if you were to take that list or maybe put together a couple of those thoughts? See, it is important for you to know what it means to be a genuine believer. I am so happy this camp is happening. I'm so happy that, that our church supports us letting do a, a camp for teenagers, for high school students, because it is so vital that you would understand what it means to be a true believer. There is nothing more important than to understand what it is that God requires for you to be one of his people. There's a few reasons for this, for us to study this this week. Reason one might be that some of you may have been confused, duped, tricked into having a misconception about what a real Christian is. And so therefore you've tricked yourself and you've somehow made your own form of Christianity that, well, it's not really in the Bible, but it exists in your own heart. It's important for us to know what a real Christian is because friends, we're not living in a world that is friendly towards Christianity. We're living in a world with two extremes. On one end, you've got people that are very comfortable Christians. And Christianity is something I can add to my pursuit of my boat or my pursuit of my career. I'm storing up righteousness as I build up my retirement fund. And my really, my biggest goal is to live a big, happy Christian life with a big gold Bible in my big white house. Comfortable Christianity. Yet it's also important for us to know because as you've seen, the world is changing. It's no longer easy in the United States or in most of the world to be a Christian. There's an aggressive attitude towards Christianity, a hostile attitude towards Christianity. And it's gonna get worse for you, it's gonna get worse for your kids as the world turns. And so it's important for us to know what does it mean to be a Christian because as the world grows more and more opposed to Christianity, you gotta know what you've signed up for. I mean, I think the events that we've seen in the last year only make it more important that you're here because you're known, I mean, what have I committed to? Am I really all in? I mean, when, the, when it gets hotter and hotter, am I really gonna continue to believe this? 
It's also important that we know this because in the next few years, you are making some of the most important decisions of your life. And you would not want to make them as a confused, deceived Christian, a false Christian. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to belong to Christ? Well, tonight, I want to look at the words of Christ. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. And what I want to do for the next 10 minutes or so is instead of looking at just one verse, I want to look at a bunch of verses to just really get a picture of what it is that Christ requires of us. What it is from Jesus himself, I mean, a Christian means little Christ. What is this real Christianity? What does it really mean to belong to him? Start in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The words we're going to look at tonight, you probably already know them because it's the theme of our camp, are follow me. And instead of just diving down into one passage, I want to just follow the, this, this chord that Jesus traces for us where we see all these different verses where Jesus talks to us about following him. Because if you want to sum up what it means to be a genuine believer, it's a genuine believer follows Christ. But what does that mean? Because even following means, means just weird things today. I mean, all of you, if you've got Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, you follow all sorts of things. You follow your friends. You follow your favorite sports teams, right? For sports fans, that's another term. They say, well, what, you know, what's your team? You're like, oh, I like to follow this team or I follow this sport. What does it really mean to follow? Well, let's look in this and let's just try to define this. We're going to unpack it through the week. But I'd love to just give a quick definition of that tonight. Let's examine here. What, is, what does Jesus say here to, to follow him? Well, if you notice in verse 37, there's this idea of not loving your father and mother more than him, not having a relationship that's greater than Christ. There's nothing that you would love more than him or you're not worthy of him. In verse 39, we'll see this a lot. He says, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? The idea of I'm losing my life for the sake of Christ? And yet this language, loving Christ, losing your life, is connected to the idea of follow me. Let's look at another one. Jump back one chapter to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, just one verse. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up. And followed him. Another time that Jesus uses this 
phrase. I think it's interesting. Christ doesn't go into this explanation. What do you believe about God? Let me try to prove to you there's a God. Let me explain to you who I am. He just off the bat says, follow me. And the response of a disciple, Matthew there, is to immediately follow him. Let's look at another one. I just want to help you see the picture here. Look at Matthew 4. Let's continue to go back. Matthew 4. We'll look at verse 18. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, as fishermen tend to do. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Again, Jesus' gospel presentation just begins with the, the primary decree, follow me. How do these disciples respond? It says, immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, we get a similar idea. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, probably with the same call, follow me. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And you might be saying, Josh, what's the big deal? They left their nets. They left their boats. I mean, I don't even like fishing. You know, who, who cares? You see, for these men, fishing was their business. It was their income. It was their wealth. For the later two brothers, their father wasn't just their relative. He also would have been the one who would have given them their inheritance. There's a close relationship there. And yet in both these situations, follow me involves sacrificing everything. They immediately leave all that they have for Christ. They leave everything to follow him. Are you starting to get it? We're seeing it over and over that Christ, when he calls you to follow him, he calls you to leave everything. And there's not this progressive step where they left some of their nets. And a few years later, they stopped writing letters to their father. And they finally sold the boat five years later and said, all right, Lord, I'm in. Immediately, everything for Christ. Go to John chapter 10. Look at a couple verses now in the book of John. John chapter 10. The pages, they're not rustling as much. Come on, guys. It's just a few verses. John chapter 10. Because you've got to see this because if you miss this, you miss Christianity. If you miss follow me, you miss it. Jesus writes, or Jesus says, my sheep hear my Voice in John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What does it mean to be one of Jesus' sheep is to follow him? Now, the idea here is the idea of saying is the imagery of a shepherd. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know that that's their master, and they follow after him. Here we start seeing the idea of, of obedience, listening to what the shepherd says. They hear his voice, he is their shepherd, and they follow after him. You know, recently, uh, you know, 10 months ago, my little son Jude was born. 
Call him the Jude dude. He'd be here now, but it's way past his bedtime. I mean, he's, he's 10 months. But something funny has started happening. Like if he hears my voice in any part of the house, he'll book it. He'll just book it. Uh, he's starting to crawl and, and get there. And the other day I was working in my office, had the door shut, and I hear on my door. And I'm like, what is going on? I thought I was home alone. Well, Jude, Katie was in the front room with him and Jude had crawled in and knew that I was in my office. Now you're saying, how do you hear your voice? Look, I talk to myself sometimes. Okay, just, just deal with it there. But anyway, he hears it and he wants to follow. Well, as believers, when we hear our master, when we hear like a sheep hearing his shepherd, we want to follow. And if you want another example of followers obey, look at John 8, chapter, or John 8 verse 12. Go two chapters to the left. Jesus says, John 8, verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow Christ, you will not walk in darkness, but you will obey him. Following him. So we're starting to see this picture that following is obedience. Following is a surrender of everything. Let's look at two more verses. Let's look at Luke chapter nine. Go to Luke chapter nine. It's one book to the left. Luke chapter nine. This is really the verse that inspired our theme. We'll look at it more later this week. Luke 9 verse 23. Christ speaks again. By the way, you've got to get the feel as we just keep seeing this over and over again. This is not some sort of Superman varsity level, varsity level Christianity that's only meant for you know, the, the on-fire Christians. It seems to be the normal expectation. What does Jesus say in Luke 9, 23? He was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is, I think, one of the best verse on what it means to follow Christ. Deny yourself. You know what that means? You embrace the reality that life is not about you. You embrace being second. You deny yourself. Life is no longer about me. If I'm gonna claim that I'm a Christian, then Josh Petrus is no longer about Josh Petrus. You deny yourself. You also take up your cross. So if you wanna come after Christ, you don't just say, I am second, but I'm willing to embrace suffering. I'm willing to embrace pain for the sake of the one that I'm following. And you must, then it says, follow me. I deny myself even to the extent of suffering because Christ is my master. Christ is my priority and life has become about him. You embrace being second, you embrace Christ as supreme even to the extent that you would embrace suffering. Are you getting it? You see, this isn't a call to come to the front and pray a prayer and feel really, really good the next time you sing, Come Thou Fount. Following Christ is a call to die. 
called to die to yourself, to your passions, your desires, your dreams, and to say it's all about him. It's all about him. He calls the shots. So if I'm on a sports team, it's about him. If I'm picking colleges, it's about him. As I'm pursuing marriage, relationships, it's about him. But every single day, I've surrendered my freedom, even my Friday nights, the friends I choose, it's all about Christ. That's what it means to follow him. And we must know this, or we risk false conversion, or fragile faith when we're persecuted, or even worse, a wasted Christian life that has a sweet house in the suburbs while no one knows anything about the Christ that you proclaim. So the question we must ask is who are you following? Or what are you following? Because everyone is following something. Everyone is pursuing something. Everyone has a master. Either it's an external thing or some passion of the heart. Maybe a relationship. Something that's supreme. Something that calls the shots. Something that always wins. Something that if you put this or church on the schedule, this one always seems to win out. We're all following something. There's a lot of things that I think that high schoolers might be following. Sometimes popularity, being liked, your social media reputation, your college, those are the things that call the shots. There's a lot of things that people pursue. A lot of things that different people pursue. You know, I live in L.A., and in L.A., we've got every professional sports league, we have a team. Uh, one of those teams is the L.A. Clippers. It's our minor league basketball team. And um, just kidding. Anyway, there's a super fan for the Clippers. His name is Clipper Daryl. Let me tell you about Clipper Daryl. He's been a Clipper fan for 2000, since 2001 has had season tickets since 2001. He goes by the name Clipper Daryl. He has a red and blue suit that he, goes to the game, that he wears to the games. He, countless nights, he's at every single home game. No matter what it is, he's there cheer, cheering on his beloved Clippers. This man has invested his whole life into a basketball team that, mind you, has never made it out of the second round. I mean, there's sports idols and then there's bad sports idols. I'm just, I'm just saying, Clipper Daryl. Right, that, doesn't that seem silly? Just the money that's spent on that? Yeah, what are the silly things that we're pursuing? What are the things that we are following? Like I said, there's a few questions we want to ask this week. Who or what are you following? But if you aren't going to follow Christ, can I ask you, what are you going to follow? I want to end tonight we're looking at one more passage. It's Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I think Mark chapter 10 is one of the saddest stories we find in the Bible. And it'll be familiar to you. I, I don't intend on speaking at length in it, but I want to give you some details. 
Because Mark chapter 10 is the story of the rich, young ruler. It says in verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. And you must know that this is the man that we call in Scripture the rich, young ruler. And we find in other passages that this man is wealthy. Whether this man is young and that he's a ruler, he's authority, he has authority, he's the teacher of a synagogue. It doesn't talk about that here in Mark, but in the other Gospels it brings this up. Now think about that. This man has everything that the world values today. Money, he's got it. Youth, he's got it. Power, influence, he has it. I mean, he would have had millions of tw- Twitter followers based on his status. And this man comes up to Christ. What does it say? He was sitting on a journey. A man ran up to Jesus. He knelt before Jesus. And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this man has a great start, does he not? I mean, he sprints to Christ. He bows before him. He calls him good teacher. He even asked the the right question. What do I get to get eternal life? I mean, you want to look at someone. This is someone that sees Jesus as valuable. Would he not? Would he not? If you asked him, do you value Christ? He would say, yes, I do. As many of you in this room might answer as well. It goes on. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Christ then goes to explain the Commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler's response is, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, we don't have time to go into this. He, he clearly would not have kept these things perfectly. But he genuinely, I think here, thinks that he has. I mean, he's a guy of good moral standing. He's a good person. And so look, you've got a good person who thinks highly of Jesus. Again, I'm sure like many of you in this room, a good moral kid who thinks much of Christ, who's got a sticker that says Jesus. Maybe Jesus, surrounded by a couple hearts, is in your Instagram bio or something like that. Then Jesus is going to ask him a question. It says, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus asked a very difficult question. In fact, so difficult Verse 22, at these words, the rich young ruler was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property, but he could not follow Christ. Why did Jesus ask that question? Why did Jesus say, why did Jesus say, there's one thing you lack, here's what you need to do, go and sell all that you have. It's not because that's the requirement for every Christian, though you might be required to do that. It's because Jesus knew the heart and Jesus knew this man's heart. And the one thing that was keeping this man from dying to self and following to him was his wealth. And 
And that's what Jesus asked for. If you want to follow me, you got to surrender the biggest thing that you prize, the greatest thing that would keep you from loving me. Some of you might be asked by Christ this week to do the same thing. See, I'm so glad you're here, and yet at the same time, there's a danger in approaching Christ. Because as you come to him, he might say, you can follow me, but I want that. That must go if you're going to follow after me. And this man walks away. Here's my question before we wrap up of this passage. Is Jesus being unloving here? I used to think that when I, when I saw this passage and think, man, Jesus, he knows all things. You know, this guy comes up to him. He, he's, he kind of says he's holy. Is Jesus kind of be snark, being snarky going, well, you want to follow me, sell all you got, and let's see what you're made of. No. Jesus is not being unloving here. In fact, look what the passage says in verse 21, that Jesus felt a love for him. How is it loving for Christ to ask him to surrender his greatest love? It's because of the offer at the end. Jesus is allowing this man to follow him. Jesus is giving this man an invitation to follow him. That is what is so loving about this. Not just it would make his life difficult, but he would receive Christ and all that comes with Christ. Not just now you get to follow, but now you get me. You get me if you do this. You get, he answers this question, you get eternal life if you follow me. If you don't follow me, you will lose your life if you hold on to it. But if you, if you surrender your life willingly, then you will gain it to eternity. Do you know what Jesus is doing right here? He's offering this man eternal life. Look at verse 32. Let me show you the scene. It says Jesus was on a journey, right? Where's Jesus going? They were on the road again to Jerusalem. This is right after this. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Do you know what's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to die on the cross, and he's the one leading the way to die for sinners to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life and not face hell forever. They were amazed, and he is saying in verse 33, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. When Jesus says, follow me, He says, yes, you need to surrender everything, but if you follow me, you will get eternal life. I am willing to go to the cross and die for your sin. Follow me. But if you do not, then none of those benefits are yours. There is no forgiveness for those who do not follow Christ in the way that he requires. Listen, this week you will be challenged to follow Christ. Know that when Jesus asks you to follow him and that when he asks you to surrender seemingly attractive things, he offers a far greater reward. His perfect life 
accredited to you. He offers his body as taking the punishment of your sin. You also know that if you reject Christ and hold on to this life, you will lose it. This week, make sure you don't make the same mistake as this man did. Examine yourself and be sure that you're following Christ. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your son that he has laid out for us how it is that we can be saved. And the cost is high, and yet it is so small. Lord, I pray for the students in this room. I pray for those that don't know you that you use this week to draw them. Pray for those that do know you that you would cause them to examine themselves. Lord, help all of us, staff included, to make sure that we are following you as you ask and ultimately, Lord, as you deserve. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.